we are continuing to go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the Word of God. And we are currently in the book of Matthew. And so let us turn to Matthew chapter 9, please. The particular stories we've been getting, a lot of them as we're getting them in Matthew, kind of come in 3G. They have been in three of the four Gospels. You're probably aware of the fact that John, 94% of what John writes is unique. So it's very rare that you find something that spans all four of those Gospels. Uh, This is one of those stories that covers the three of them. And again, this is a real story of a real person and uh, definitely one of my favorites because we find this to be uh, a very, very practical Poignant issue, especially in the culture we're living in. So we, um, Jesus has just, and we'll kind of dig into the context and pretext here in a moment, but he has just left uh, Peter's house in Capernaum, where, if you remember, his mother-in-law has been healed, and then the house turns into a hospital. The entire city, we've read, has come out to meet him, bringing all of their sick, their disease, their possessed, and he healed them all. And then Jesus leaves in a boat and he heads to the other side, to the area of Gadarenes, which is Jewish no man's territory, to encounter a couple individuals who clearly were in such bad shape that God had to do a house call. Nobody else would come and they certainly wouldn't come return. In that route, they encountered a storm that the disciples were convinced they would die from. Now we've returned to the other side of that. and On the other side of that, they've returned back to Simon Peter's house. And there, Peter gets a modification to his house. Uh, Four men, we read, rip through the tiling of the roof, says Luke, to let down a paralyzed man for Jesus to say, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And that creates quite a stir in two sides. And you may have to pick a side to that today. On one side of that, there are those who are so desperate to have off of them their sins, that such words are, well, they're a beacon of hope. And then there are those who are so quick to seek fault that they feel like they found that. And it's interesting. You, you find that the unfaithful will always be in hot search of a girl or a boy. The avarice, the greedy, will always be in search of some money. The angry will always be in search of a fight, be that verbal or physical. But the empty religious will always be in search of a fault. And certainly, they have been gathered. Luke had told us that though they had gathered in the house and it was standing room only at this point, that the power of the Lord was present to heal them, 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 not just the paralytic. If it were just the paralytic, I don't believe Jesus would have gone the route he did with dealing with sin. That was what they needed to be made whole from. But the religious leaders had so convinced themselves that they were fine with God because of their performance that the word grace was a dirty word because they had earned it. Don't miss that. But the power of the Lord was present to heal them, to make them whole. But they would walk out of there very, very angry, very put off. On the other side of it, of course, there were those that were desperate for that cleansing. And in that 
desperation, those words were everything that they needed. And, and I ask you, which side would you take? Would you be quick to try to find the fault or would you be quick to try to find your fault removed? And all three counts of this calling that we read now, starting, by the way, in verse 9, they all are preceded by this story. The story of this paralytic. We'll develop that, God willing, in a moment. So read with me, if you would, please, verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me, literally be following me. And so he arose and followed him. Now what happened is Jesus sat at the table in the house that, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw that, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Well, when Jesus heard this, he said to them, Those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Pray with me, would you please, as we begin. Lord, I I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would minister to every one of us today. You know, not just every breath or every hair that is counted, but every atom, and they've all been chronicled in your book. Every breath, every waking moment. And yet, for every atom, for every hair, for, for every breath, you outnumbered them all with the thoughts you carry for each of us individually. And you know everything we entertain You know, the silt that sits at the bottom of our hearts from previous regrets and those moments where we claim victory on things we have no right to. You know, the weaknesses and the battles that we still face and the giants that still stand before us at our valleys of Elah. You know, Lord, those things that we stand before and the ways that we facade and make up them over in such a way that somehow here in our Christian costumes we can sit and be kind of crack-free while there are very fractures within us, and those are the things I'm asking you to address today. For such an individual as this, as powerful of a story as this is, and yet very little development here in Matthew, the writer of this story, who, by the way, is also the subject of the story. I pray today, Lord, that you would do what I cannot humanly do, that you would speak a word to each of us individually, right where we need to hear you, as well as corporately, And in doing so, God, that today your word would burst open and come alive as you promised. As snow falls to the ground, it does not rise up again without watering the ground it lands on, causing it to seed, to bud and flourish, bringing seed to the sower and bread to the one who eats. So is your word. You promise it never returns empty while your word is going forth. And as your word goes forth, God, may it not return empty, but may it land on the fertile soil that will bear fruit upon each of our hearts. So, Lord, I pray you would commandeer our attention. May we be captivated every second in what it is you want to do now in your word. May we have so much fun now as well. So we commit this to you and pray every moment dedicated to you. Redeem every second. And, Lord, for this message, make it proper in length as well as in depth. That we would get it. and That the penny would drop today for each of us on this 
our last Sunday in 2015. In the name of our Savior and Lord, Ransom and King Jesus the Christ, we pray. Amen. I would say today as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. But search the scriptures and let the Bible always be your authority. Let the Bible always be the thing you test all things. You hear not certainly just me, but everywhere. It's amazing. People will test the pastor that way, but often won't test the news that way. Or some guy with horn-rimmed glasses that somehow is an expert, or whatever the case is. First of all, let's sort of set things up here. I'm going to set things up by at least understanding a little bit about how the tax system works in, well, in regards to the Roman Empire, for which this was one. The Romans weren't dumb, and they also recognized that as far as Rome was concerned, trying to send a Roman in to collect tax money was sort of like sending riot police into uh, some form of racially driven protest. You're kind of asking for it to some degree. But they also knew that the, that the Jewish people, that they were very, very staunch and unyielding in certain areas in regards to their law. And it tells us that there are seven things that the Lord hates, eight that he detests. A lie, he says, a haughty look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood. And they knew that they would do anything not to shed innocent blood. Ironic when we get to the story of Jesus, of course, here. So when, for instance, the Jewish people had occupied the, um, one of the Herodian uh, castles, for instance, uh, in Israel, Masada, if the Romans were just besieged, and they started with besieging, if they had just sort of gone in, the Jewish people didn't have a problem shooting at them in whatever way they were, they were able. But if they put Hebrew slaves in front of them, well, then they knew that the Hebrews couldn't do anything about it. And that's how the Romans went and took back, by the way, Masada. Now, consider that when you realize that you're trying to go and you're trying to collect money to fund an empire that, of course, puts you under the thumb of this empire. I mean, what it does is you are strengthening the government that hates you, is is your mindset among the Jewish people. And worse than just, they were kind of taxing you and being mean to you and, in essence, owning you in many ways. They were very, very hot on themselves to where they had busts of their emperors who thought they were God incarnate. And they would demand them in every one of the cities that were conquered by Rome. They would put these busts up. And the only city that did not have a Roman bust in it was Jerusalem. The people said they would rather die. Oh, they were staunch in their practices. There's no doubt. So how do you set things up? Well, that's actually rather simple. What you do is you just find a greedy enough Jewish person to collect your taxes. And so the way that they did it was sort of often like eBay. Consider it this way. So what they would do is they would take a specific spot. There were three specific tax booths, by the way, in Israel of its day. There was one down in Jerusalem, one in Jericho on the way. We're familiar with that one because of Zacchaeus. And then the one up in the north. This one was big money. Because this particular one, set in Capernaum, by the way, was in the crosshairs of the two major trade routes. The Via Maris the way of the sea, which took us all the way from the Far East through the Silk Route, through Damascus, and then down, taking that left turn just beyond Capernaum, down by the way of the sea in the Jordan, all the way down into Egypt through the King's Highway. It was a very big money place. That was all of that trade from the East all the way into Turkey, all the way into Turkey, by the way, and into Egypt, all took place through that route. So you can imagine that was a very, very big deal. And it splintered off, but all of it sort of meant right there, is it splintered down into Egypt and splintered over into Turkey. So to set up something there, well, that was a great deal. 
So what they would do is they would do an auction. And they would gather, the, if you will, the greedy Jewish people. And, in, and not that I'm saying Jewish people are greedy, but those that were willing to splinter off from their culture and say, who can get me how much here? By virtue of death, by the way, if you didn't come up with what the fund was, you bid on your own life. So they said, oh, we've got this tax booth. It's in Capernaum. Who wants it? Who can give it to me? And all of a sudden, Jamie says, I can bring in a hundred grand a year for Adam. And then Hugo says, I think I could put in 200 grand a year. Daniel, being a little cheeky, says, I think I could do three. By the time we're done, Rob has really pushed it, and he says, one mil a year. Sold. Your responsibility. And he then has the responsibility of raising one million pounds, if you will, for the Roman government. Now, he can do that in several ways. He could tax, by the way, he had the responsibility of taxing a land tax, which went from 1% to 13%. A person tax for every person over 12, by the way, for uh, girls and over 13 for boys. Uh, And he could actually then as well tax uh, as far as the income, the general income of of the area. And it was actually relatively easy. But everything that he taxed beyond that was his own income. And then what he did then is he went and he tried to find, if you will, scoundrels greater than himself that would work for him. And those particular people, by the way, now there was no code for what they could tax. So what they taxed then is they taxed the sea, they taxed the land, they taxed the travel. There was a road tax. There was an axle tax. I mean, it was sort of like if you had too much hair, they could tax you. If you had too little hair, they could tax you. If you were Spanish, they could tax you. I mean, if they were creative enough. So what you needed were people that were quick on the dough. And what they did is they were trained in this. They were trained in Roman shorthand, which means that they could write as fast as you could speak. They had an endless supply, by the way, of ink pots and membranas, which means that they could write anywhere that they wanted to, but they were set up at a tax booth at a specific mile marker, the place that they thought had the greatest opportunity to bring in the greatest income. Well, that only made sense. Now, we do know that the person who wins the bid, like in this case, Rob, would be what we would call our chief tax collector. He was the boss. By the way, we do know of one of those because the guy in Jericho, Jericho, the guy named Zacchaeus, we read, was a chief tax collector. He was the boss. But we don't read that of Matthew. What we read of Matthew, on the other hand, is that he was a tax collector. So he was one of the guys that would work for the chief tax collector. Now, I'd like you to consider the fact, and those of you who have been to Israel, you know how this is. We set ourselves up of where that mile marker would be. That mile marker, by the way, would have to be at the place of greatest interest, which means it has to be in clear shot of the sea because they could tax the income from the fish that were caught. And it has to be clearly on the route so we could tax the travel in between at the Via Maris and the Silk Road. It also has to be where near the religious establishment, because near the religious establishment, by the way, allows you because even the religious leaders got an income. And they taxed that income because as far as they were concerned, unless it was a Roman religion, they were going to be willing to tax it because as far as they were concerned, it was still income. And of course, they would call it a temple tax as part of it because they were rebuilding. They were converting something 4,400 square feet to 1.2 million square feet that we know of as the temple in Jerusalem. So that's a, it's a big remodel and it takes a lot of money. So if you were to put one person in one spot right there and we were to look at the things that we know right now in Capernaum, because Capernaum still stands to some degree. It's, of course, more now it's an archaeological site. Well, we know where the synagogue was. We know where the synagogue was because there's a sort of an archaeological statement, a sort of a phrase that's coined, and that is once a holy place, always a holy place. And they took that same first century synagogue and then built upon it a new synagogue. And that's kind of the way that works. So you kind of know where that was. 
Well, next to that synagogue was a house, apparently originally an ordinary house. But a, but what's clear, according to the symbols that are established, there are first century markings that it was a Christian church. So there are many people who believe that that was Peter's house. So let's just go with that for a second. Now, today they've done something really weird with it. They were not allowed. They wanted to build a church around it. The Catholic Church did. But they were not allowed by the Israeli government to build on the property. So what they built is something that looks like a spaceship that hovers over it. It's one of the weirdest things you've ever seen. You're kind of like, oh, look at this. Look at this artifact, 2,000 years old. And then, whoa, whoa, whoa. There's a thing all of a sudden. You know, you're waiting for it to be like, Anyways, you know, anyways, but they met the, the confines where they were able to hover above it and not touch the house. And then you kind of look at it and there's a space in between. And then I look at where the mile marker is. And if I were to be in Matthew's tax booth, I would be in clear shot of that synagogue and of that house. And in between, that's where the beach was. That's where, by the way, you could see the fishermen pulling in and porting after their catches of fish, or in many of our cases, as we read in Scripture, the no-catch of fish. Now, the reason I say that is, is when we read the text, if we actually aren't going to be kind of as studious in studying the text uh, and kind of going through it, what we kind of get is Jesus almost does this weird Jedi mind trick, right? It's like this guy's at the text with, and Jesus just comes over and goes, you will follow me. And he's like, you must follow. I mean, that's what we kind of get unless we really kind of get the history. And what do we know has taken place prior to this point? Well, let me say this first. Matthew is not his only name. Matthew is a Greek name, by the way. which mainly means, means, well, it means gift of God. Matthias. But we have, again, like I said, this was in both other texts. This is what we read, by the way, in the other two texts. Now I'm reading from Mark chapter 2, verse 13, same story. Then he went out again by the sea, and all the multitudes came to him and he taught them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. And the Luke text, this is Luke 5, 27. It says, after these things he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office and said to him, follow me. And so he left all, rose up and followed him. And our two texts that parallel this one, we do read of his birth name. And his birth name is a Hebrew name. And that Hebrew name is Levi. Now, why is that so important? Why didn't they just call him Matthew and all three to make it easy? Because God clearly wanted to tell us something or he wouldn't have put it in. Now, it's to this day very traditional for you to name someone in your family or name your children after somebody in your family. Somebody prominent. You can get that in Spanish, people. You've got to kind of get that through. And after a while, it's like, what's your name? And then get comfortable. Like, my name is Ricardo Benito, Ricardo Benito, Sanchez. You know, and I'm like, oh, I didn't get that. You know, can I call you Juan? You know, uh, and, and the reason is, is because you kind of you can almost chase a family line or history and these great accomplishments in the family through that. Well, in those days, you did the same thing. Now, Levy's actually a fairly easy one. There could have been a lot of other names. You could have had to do a lot more research. But clearly, Jacob had 12 sons. Jacob, we know, gets a name change himself to Israel. And of those 12 sons, by the way, six of them are actually the, the sons of a woman named Leah. The first four of those children that are born to him are from that woman. The first, by the way, is Reuben, because she says, see, a son, which is Reuben, what it means. Now, it's interesting. The girl just wants to be loved. 
She has a younger sister, and, well, unfortunately, her husband had the hots for her sister so much he wanted to marry her dad. Ladies, imagine this. Dad looks at you and says, sorry, honey, but you're never going to get married off unless you pretend to be your sister. Oh, boy, that's just going to make you feel good. So I want you to dress up and act like your sister. Keep the blinds closed. Make sure they're blackouts. And after the kind of you've consummated the marriage, then be like, surprise! You can imagine. Imagine the look on Jacob's face. In this poor world, the guy wakes up, he's like, ah! And there's this weak-eyed girl is what we read Leah to be. And all she wants is to be loved. And so she, when the first boy is born, she, she says, oh, look. A son, now my husband will love me. Oh, no. Second son, now. Shima'un. Shema, like to hear. God has heard her. He has heard. Oh, God has heard my cry. Well, what's the cry? God, I just want to be loved. Now, even today, as we're aware of here, for instance, the responsibility, ultimately, of a duchess, we'd say, is to provide an heir and a spare. That's kind of the idea. And we see that happen. The idea of having two sons, now there's a bit of security in that, because even if one were to pass away, you still had one to, family, to carry on the family line. Hey, look at two now. Still no response from her husband. He still, still wants Rachel, her younger sister, Rachel. But by the third child, his name is Levi. And Levi means attached. He says, oh, now my husband will be attached to me. Look at I've provided for him three sons. This poor will provide six of the twelve sons for what we know as the twelve tribes and yet never have the affection of her husband like she wanted. However, that fourth son, Judah, which means praise. Now I'll get praise for my husband. I've given him four sons. It is through that son God chooses Jesus to come through. The love she was looking for actually would come from God. She just wouldn't get it from her husband. But that third son, Levi, while we chase it down, there's a prophecy in Genesis 15 about how Abraham, by the way, God promised that four generations you'll find yourself in captivity for 400 years, and then four generations you'll be able, you'll be able to step out. While we chase it down from Abraham, that is Levi, and we chase it down from Levi then. And we'll ultimately find uh, it was Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Levi. That goes into the promise, or I should say, I'm sorry, into Egypt. And then from there, we'll chase four lineage out. And then four generations down from there will be Moses, who will come then from the tribe of Levi, as will his brother, of course, Aaron and his sister Miriam. But it won't take us long once they've left the land to ultimately find themselves in a place where, where Moses has now stepped up onto the, the Mount Sinai to receive the law and the blueprints, if you will, for the, the sanctuary. We're down at the bottom. He's left his brother in charge, his older brother of three years, Aaron. And Aaron, the people are like, well, we don't know what's happened to this guy, the guy that led us out of Egypt. Make us a God that we can worship, something we can see. Oh, how we lust for the tangible. Like, God, I need you more tangible. Yeah, yeah, I know God loves me, but I need a hand to hold. I need a face to stare at me with that googly eye. Well, ultimately, they would. And when Moses returns down, it tells you, by the way, a couple of things. It says he's with his servant, by the way, Joshua. And Joshua says, it's the sound of war down there. And Moses says, no, I'm sorry, that's just the choir. And that's apparently how bad they sound. And, and it, what's interesting is what he's saying is it sounds like people dying. And it really is the sound of people dying, just spiritually. And as he comes down there, he finds them dancing around this golden calf, completely committing adultery against the God that took him out of Egypt. 
And ultimately, a line will be drawn in the sand, literally, and say, if you're going to stand with the real God, the one who actually got you out of Egypt, I want you standing on this side. And the entire tribe of Levi stands on that side. Why is that important? Because it was from that that God says, because you took that stand with me, you will be the priestly line. And other than one promise that had come all the way, by the way, in, in Psalm 110, where it says that you are a high priest in the order of Melchizedek, outside of that, the priest's lineage was to come from Levi, a Levitical priesthood. That's where we get the term. So why am I telling you all of this? Because why name a kid Levi or Levi unless he's of that lineage? I can't imagine a kid from Judah being named Levi, a kid from Simeon being named Levi, unless you're trying to sneak him in as a priest. So let's do that for a second. Roll that with me for a second. What do you have? You have a guy who was raised, he was a PK. He was a priest's kid. Somebody that saw the politic, somebody that saw the debauchery. By the way, 38 times, by the way, in the book of Matthew, he will use the word hypocrite more than the entire rest of the Bible combined. I think he knows what it... And by the way, hypocrite, hypocrite, just means to wear a mask. It's an actor. He's not condemning acting. But he is in the church. This is not the place to act. This is the place to surrender. To him, by the way. And so imagine, if you will, what did he see? He saw the religious leadership now collecting big money. What he saw was nice TV shows and clean hair and expensive suits and big cars and all of the things, by the way, that turn our stomachs when we're aware of it. And he looked at that, and somewhere down the line, somebody raised in that environment says, that's enough. If this really is about a big sham with a God thing put on the top of it, and this is a big sham without a God thing on top of it, it almost seemed more noble to be greedy in the world than it did in the church. Because somewhere in at least you were like, I'm not going to be a hypocrite. I'll just be full-on nasty and not pretend. There's no mask. This is just who I am. Rank and awful. And somewhere down the line, Matthew runs out. Here's the question. How do you reach a guy like that? How do you reach a guy that, when you even mention the name Jesus, their skin crawls, or you mention church? And it's amazing because it seems to me in this country that if, you, if we read about the people who call themselves Christians, and we can all agree most of them probably aren't, well, that's not for us to decide, but of the people who call themselves Christians to the people who actually, I mean, this still says that the majority of the people in this country are still calling themselves Christians, but less than 2% of them say that they would even and remotely regularly attend church more than Christmas and Easter at best. That's 2%. And then look at that and I think something's missing. And you talk to people. We talk to people on the streets and they're like, yeah, I'm a Christian. Hey, what fellowship do you go to? It seems like such a natural question. What part of the body? Where are you plugged in? And you're like, ah, I don't want to do that. You don't understand. That's just a bunch of whatever. They have no clue I'm a pastor, right? And they're, you know, they're just there to take your money. And they're just, how many churches have you gone to? Well, I heard a story. You heard a story. And they kept you out. Imagine David says, I'm hungry. And I'm like, yeah, but I heard this story about this place once where somebody ate and got sick and they died from diarrhea. I mean, imagine David's like, oh, well, yeah, you're right. I probably shouldn't go there anymore. I should never eat again. Yeah, that ain't happening. See, I'm hitting a nerve with that, aren't I? Now, consider this for a second, beloved. That somewhere in all of this, here's a guy like so many of the people we talk to. 
And they're like, you know, well, this is what I saw. I saw this thing on TV. I heard this article. I read about this Irish priest raping somebody. I mean, and it's like, and, you know, it's like, how much of that is true? And they're going to ask me, like, I'm, like, I know the priest in Ireland. I'm like, I don't know. I can tell you this. None of it's Jesus. Well, what do you think of the Pope? I don't know. He doesn't call me. I mean, they're, they're, they're flipping so quick these days. I'm not really sure by the time I learn one guy, the next guy's there, you know? And it's, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of looking at him going, I don't know. He doesn't invite me over for dinner. All I know is this. All I know is Jesus. And somewhere down the line, we've bought into this lie that we have to answer everybody's questions, like to defend Christianity. But let me tell you something. Raising up amidst our generation is the hate the church church. Have you noticed that? I'm just going to sit at home, and I'm going to tell people, you don't need church. We are the church. What we're going to do is we're going to sit around, we're going to listen to a Joyce Meyer tape or something, and we're going to sort of think smart or whatever, and then that's church. Well, what is church then? What it is is you came as a consumer, and you know what you said? You know, shine actually braving all the crowds on Oxford Street. I'm going to order on Amazon. Isn't that what you're saying? I'll just have it delivered to my house. I don't have to get up, and I'll just have to wait. For, you know, oh look, it, I could get prime. I could get it tomorrow. You know, I mean, that's where we're going with it because somehow in it, some we thought that now church is some guy performs and everyone else nods like a okay, it's like a live performance, and maybe I'll give if it's good enough. Do you realize what this is supposed to be? This is supposed to be the place where we say, God, I am yours, now use me. And you're like, I don't know, this is going to be really weird. But the people that you're trying this on have to forgive you. They're Christians. This is the best place. You're like, I don't know, but I feel like the Lord may have a word for you. I just want to, can I pray for you? And this is the thing, test it out. And imagine if you said that, it's like, this should be the place where you're like, wow, this kind of stuff happens here. Nobody comes in as a consumer because you realize what a consumer is, right? That's somebody who gives the least and gets the most. Because after all, if you're not, then you're a dumb consumer. You got a bad deal. So we shop churches now. We get online and we're like, well, what's, what are my needs? Here's my list of needs and let's just figure it out. I need a place that serves a cappuccino during the service. And I need to make sure I don't get what kind of worship band do I want and what kind of, t- okay, 42 minutes, 42 minutes. You know, and we get these things. I want to make sure that, you know, 42 minutes, 20 of them speaking in tongues. 10 minutes is a guy with an exhortation where he's pulling scriptures and throwing them at me. And then, and then in the end of it all, we have a latte together. And like somewhere in there, can you imagine? It's like, in other words, you could do all of that stuff. Jesus could not be in the building and you could say, that was the perfect church. Could you imagine? But what would happen if we all gathered together together in here and said, all right, Jesus is the Lord of this house because Jesus is the Lord of the house. I expect to encounter him here. And if I expect to encounter him here, what do I want? What do I think actually more importantly, what do I think he wants? Am I the end of it? Do I just want joy to be happy? Or do I want joy so I could pour it on you? Do I want love so I can feel loved? Or do I want love so I can pour it on you? Because if we showed up to church with that mindset, could you imagine what would happen here? You know what would happen? There would be days where we would go, let's pray. And then I'd be like, man, they're still praying. It's like 40 minutes and they're still praying. And I'd like, okay. And again, I'm not condemning. What I'm saying is, imagine what it would be like if we were like, Lord, I'm here to use me. And not just how, where's the tea table again? And the only reason I say that is, is we've gotten to the place where we breed Matthews. And we let him go because, after all, what difference does it make? Because in the end of it all, isn't success just having a lot of people? Funny, it seems to me that Jesus was always telling people, it's like a guy doesn't have an army, grows an army, Jesus says, no, don't tell anyone. Like the moment the guy claps, no one's going to notice. 
Oh, you can't see. And now you're like walking around painting. Nobody. And why do you think he's telling him that? Some people say it's reverse psychology. Or is it really what Mark says? Because the moment a guy starts blabbing off like that, Jesus can no longer have his one-on-ones. And that's what he's trying to do. So he has to go out into a city somewhere, out of the city, go into the wilderness, and then everyone finds him there. Jesus is like, you know, I know what the multitude's going to do. They're going to scream, crucify him. I know where that's going. But, but you specifically, and you specifically. I mean, the names. And then I look at someone like Paul that will follow after that. And it's like you read the letters, and it isn't just like, and say all to the guys over there, what's up? Pray for him. He's like, hey, there's like, there's like luscious and puddings and like these names that it's like, I love these names are in this scripture. It's like every place he is, is like, here's, you know, it's like you get to Colossae, it's a church he hadn't even met. He's like, Epaphroditus, a guy that worked with him, actually went and planted the church, and yet he's got a long list of names at the end of it. He's like, say hi to this guy and this guy. Oh, and by the way, this guy says hi, and then there's this guy that says, I mean, the guy just knew names because apparently it wasn't about, okay, how big is the church now? And we left a church where we didn't know everybody's name, didn't know everybody's name, so that when somebody does something wonky, it really hurts because you know their name. And I love the fact that somewhere in all of this, Matthew here, is, we get this story highlighted in a handful of verses where somewhere in all of this, this guy's like, I am so done with this nonsense. This whole, let's put on this thing, and the guy waves his hands, and let's do all this. And then in the end of it all, everybody brings their money, and they drop it with big to-do. And these guys, and Jesus talks about them. Right there, the guys that love to pray on street corners. So people go, wow, are you holy? Look at how long you're praying. And look at how you give. Check out my check. I've got a seat and it's got my name on it. Big tithe. Or, you know, I changed my middle name to Big Tithe. You know, and it's, you know, and all that's like, it's amazing how Jesus is like, he's just so, he's so irritated and nauseated by all of this. But, but please hear me in this. And obviously we've kind of overdeveloped this, but please hear me in this. Somewhere in all of this, Jesus still loves this guy. And as a pastor, sometimes guys like this, you know, they're the guys that are out there calling themselves atheists. It is amazing how many people don't believe in a God they're so angry at. Ah, look at, I don't believe in Santa. Sorry, but I'm not angry at him because he doesn't exist. There's no Easter Bunny. Be warm and filled. So listen, what do we know happens here? Before this point, let me point out five really quick things, and we'll walk through our text rather quickly about what it's going to be like if I were going to be this guy and how I'm going to follow him. Well, this is kind of what I know up to this point in this. First of all, Luke kind of develops it. By the way, you're probably, maybe you're aware of it, that Luke is the only gospel writer of the four that actually said he wanted to write it in chronological order. Are you aware of that? Someone's like, so when did this happen? I'm like, go with Luke, because he says, I sought to set an orderly account, a linear account. I like the fact that Luke makes that really clear. Now, traditional Hebrew teaching, by the way, is more thematic anyways. But in Luke, he actually gives us some things that kind of make it clear. And then we can pull off a couple from Matthew, too. This is kind of what I know, is that Jesus has been rejected from his own hometown of Nazareth. And he makes his way then over to Capernaum. As he makes his way over to Capernaum now, he teaches in their synagogue. And I remind you, put yourself in that place. So let me just do this just to have a little fun. David, come on up for a second. Okay. David, this is your tax booth. Okay, you ready? I want you to stay from this spot to this spot and just stay right there, okay? This is where he is. Now, over here, and about here is literally about the distance between that and the beginning of the synagogue. <clears throat> he could throw a rock at the synagogue and probably often wanted to. Now, we walk over to about right here, maybe about twice the length to the pillar, and that's Simon Peter's house. 
Are you following me on that as far as where he's at? In between that space, you can see the sea. So Jesus makes his way in. So now you don't know him from anyone at this point. But you are stuck like a lab rat trapped to see what happens. And he doesn't get to see what's inside. I mean, do you think this guy's going to set foot in church? Let me tell you about what happens. First of all, he was, un- he was unable to hold office. He was unable to vote. He was unable to be a witness in the court of law. His whole family was considered defiled. Anyone in his family, his children, couldn't get a job within the Jewish community. That's how serious. Nobody was nastier in the sight of the Jewish people than this guy because he was a traitor. Be warm and fill. I only do you because I picked it. We were kind of close on the shirt so I can relate to it. Yeah. Okay. Now, now walk with me in this. So, so this guy kind of walks in. And at this point, I remind you, when Jesus starts this ministry, he doesn't have a large crowd. He doesn't have anyone. Basically, the only people that can, he did gather a crowd before this, but they tried to throw him off a cliff. So I gather they probably didn't take, take him with him. So Jesus kind of walks into this place and you hear this noise. Because there is a guy possessed by a demon in there. That was amazing. The guy wasn't freaking out till Jesus showed up. Well, we can get why. Because if Jesus isn't in the church, why would a demon be troubled at all? So, and Jesus casts the guy out. And the guy, maybe he walked in somewhere in it. So you can imagine, here is David at this point, playing the role of Matthew very well. He watches this guy come in. However you want to play the role. I should probably have Sarah play it. Uh, yeah, only because... She's played roles of a similar nature. Anyways, so, so imagine, he kind, of, he kind of walks in, and you can imagine him going, oh, this ought to be good. And then in comes walking, and this guy is obviously a rabbi. Oh, this ought to be really good. And all of a sudden, the guy comes walking out, and he's praising God. But it wasn't just that. The religious leaders, the religious leaders walk out, and they are so angry at this guy because he really mucked up church because before this point church was okay everything was cool we saw we had a demonic what's the big deal it didn't didn't mess with our form we got out in 42 minutes and and now all of a sudden he really dirtied things up now what do you think caught his attention the most of that my guess is probably the religious leaders because see what he had a real problem with had a real problem with this guy And all of a sudden, before he even meets this Jesus, they have something in common. They have a common enemy. And I think that's a very interesting place to start. So then Jesus gets out of this place, and he goes to the sea, and he begins to teach. And as he begins to teach, there are four guys there, and we're aware of them because they had a fishing business. Do you think that Matthew knew these guys? I think he knew them real well. And I have a feeling that Peter, by the way, there's a joke that, that I don't know why Bible scholars would tell jokes like this, but they're like, you know, it was uh, Matthew who, by the way, taught Peter how to curse. Anyways, but I'd imagine every time the guy came in with fish, Matthew was there waiting with his membranas to, okay, let's check it out. How much did you get? Right. And, and imagine, so I imagine they had some kind of relationship. They fish all night. They catch nothing. Who do you think makes, who's, takes a note of that? This guy. Because that's very disappointing for him, because everything he gets over what he's expected, he skims off and gets himself. So there's nothing. And then all of a sudden Jesus teaches, and then they come in with this giant catch of fish, and Jesus is calling these guys, and he's like, whoa, he calls those guys? He calls those guys? Wait a minute, rabbis don't go near those guys. Rabbis don't talk to those guys. They don't have anything to do with those guys. Those are dirty, filthy, foul-mouthed, rank, watch-your-wallet kind of guys. What in the world am I doing? with? Why is a rabbi with those guys? Imagine how that would be intriguing. 
But then Jesus goes and he heads up a hill. And as he heads up a hill, he begins to teach. And all of a sudden, these guys start bringing all of these demoniacs and these people that were paralyzed and these are the people that were possessed. I mean, well, demoniacs and possessed, imagine. And, you know, and people sick. And it says, and tormented. Interesting, by the way, it wasn't just physical. There were emotional and mental people here. I mean, they were suffering on both sides of this. And get this. Somewhere in all of this, Jesus heals them all, and then he begins to teach. We know the Sermon on the Mount. And I wonder, I wonder if Matthew was there writing it down. Because it's word for word. We have obviously the most explicit teaching on it. And I remind you, because of his training, he could write as fast as you could speak. And I wonder what that would be like for him to sit there and just start penning this thing down. Actually, probably this way because it's Hebrew. Anyway, and, you know, and then after all of that, he's back in the place. Now, we have to go beyond that now. Jesus goes back in here and there's a guy with a withered hand. Well, that would be interesting. And guess what happens? Same thing. The guy with the withered hand is now raising his hands. The religious leaders are stomping out of their furious. And they have their beards long enough to match wherever it has to be on Daniel's, you know, uh, his jumper. And, and, and all of that, all of a sudden, Matthew watches this. And you can imagine, it's like, oh, he's really upsetting them. i got to listen more to this guy. And then he just goes across the way. As he goes across the way, then he heads into Simon Peter's house. And as he heads into Simon Peter's house, Simon Peter's mother is sick with a fever. Matt, Luke tells us, by the way, a high fever. And so he goes and touches her. And then it says, then the entire city, is what Luke said, the entire city shows up. At the door. So in other words, Jesus is like, "Hon, you're going to have to get well because company's coming. Well, who's coming? The entire city. And it's not just the entire city, but it's every demoniac. One demoniac is too many demoniacs to invite into your house. But every one of them, and they're all the door. And Jesus is like, and it doesn't say that Jesus just waved his coat or he went, whoa, or feel the power, whoa, and everyone fell over and shook. What it says is that Jesus touched every one of them. Listen to the difference. Jesus didn't go, check out the crowd I got now. He's like, you're sick? All right. You're sick? Okay. And I just love the fact that Jesus is that personal. Every one of them is going to get a personal encounter with him. And I wonder what that would be like for Matthew, stuck in his booth, watching that. And then it gets better. And then Jesus goes. Phew, quiet time. You can probably hear the religious leaders talking in the street, upset about him at this point. And Jesus is headed over to the other side to go to the gatherings. Somewhere in all that, Jesus is going to return back. And as he returns back, we're in Matthew 9 now. Believe it or not, we actually got to our text. And as they're in 9, here he is stuck. And of all the days when the house is crowded, this one. And of all the, I mean, what if the house wasn't crowded and they could take this paralyzed guy and bring him in through the back? Why do you think they had to go through the roof? I think it was for him. Because to go through the roof, we're going through the roof, baby, is because this guy needs to see this. And so up they go with these guys. And now with this, if you were this guy, I mean, how long can you play Minecraft or whatever before <laughs> sooner or later you're looking up and go, whoa, they're taking a paralyzed guy up a flight of steps. And he's up on a roof. Check him out. They're digging through the roof. Now, that would, ca- that would captivate me. And we watch this guy and they let him down. And the guy comes running out and he's so stoked. He's so excited because of what Jesus has done. But that's not all. Because I remind you, the presence of the Lord was there to heal them. Because when the religious leaders walk out, 
I don't think they're saying the same story. Do you remember what Jesus did say to him? He said, son, your sins are forgiven you. And for the first time, I imagine Matthew looking at all this, Levy looking at all of this, saying, whatever religion that guy's a part of, I want to be a part of it. I want to be a part of that. Hey, people will join ISIS because they could feel power and because they feel a part of something they're actually involved in. And then they think that they show up at church, they get nothing. Because they're not encountering Jesus. So this guy sees all of this, but imagine now that cutting through his heart. Your sins are forgiven you. That you may know that the Son of Man, Daniel 7 makes clear, not a Son of Man, but the Son of Man has power on earth. The Son of Man, I heard that story as a kid. The priests talk about the coming Mashiach Nagid, the Messiah, the Prince, the Son of Man, who would come and restore Israel, forgive sins, cleanse debts. I get it. And that you would know that that Son of Man has power on earth to afiyemi. That's the, he- the Greek word, which means literally to lift off and abandon. The Hebrew word, by the way, is an easy word to remember, Nassau. And it means to lift off. How easy is that to remember? You know, it's like, we have liftoff. And that's the idea. And it's like he wants to forgive your sins. He wants to lift off your sins, which means they must be on you. And what would it be like for this guy to go, you know, whoever this guy is, I want to be near this guy. But he has power to forgive sins. This is be more than just joining a club. This is more than just paying dues. This is more than just having to do my duty. But this is about forgiveness of sins. Well, I can see why at this point all Jesus has to do is let him know he's welcome. Because he's already shown that lifeless religion was his enemy. But by the way, Jesus didn't go out looking for a fight with them. Have you noticed that? He just held his ground when they came to him. Jesus never went and go, oh, I'm going to go find those Pharisees. And imagine seeing them over there praying. See that? Watch this guy fasting. Look at how he looks. I mean, Jesus doesn't do that. He just knows when they came at him, he just didn't back down. He was like, look it, you know, you're this. And I was like, well, let me ask you a question. Then. And I love the fact that Jesus, he was, he was going to be so busy about telling you the truth about the love of God and the gospel. And that's what we read, that the gospel of the kingdom, we'll see it at the end of chapter 9, that the issue is, is that when that stuff just comes, the issue is just not derivating, not swerving from the call. That stuff was just there to divert you, and he wasn't going to let it. So at this point, imagine going through the heart of Matthew, of Levi, and saying, well, but what do you want want me? I mean, I could see he's healing people like a leper and and demoniacs. I mean, clearly he's unintimidated. He shows his, his cleanliness, his purity over uncleanness like a leper and his power over the whole demonic world with the demoniacs. I get all of that, but what do you want me? The difference between me and all of those other people is somewhere in all of that, I have openly chosen to betray my entire world by being what I am. Can you think of any parallels to that today? My, I am identified now by this lifestyle choice that is clearly in opposition with the place I was raised. I want to remind you in this, when Jesus calls him to follow, he doesn't say keep working as a tax collector either. To follow him, and that's what we'll see as we close this up, is the opposite. So imagine going through his heart, going rummaging through his heart and going, but would he want me, a person who's openly made this choice to betray everything that, he's, that he represents? I can see why Jesus didn't have to do much. 
for the leper who said, hey, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And he touches the man before he even speaks to know, let the guy know, I am willing. But for this guy, all he has to do is say, follow me. And the resolve of this guy to say, what is he leaving behind? The coins, the booth, which, by the way, now looks like a cattle stuck in a stall to be slaughtered. He's going to have to walk away from all of this at the risk of his own life. See, what this guy had the privilege of knowing was that to walk away from this was to say death, was to claim death to all that he knew. Strange, because he already knew how to do that once before when he became this. Now look at him. Thank you, David. Thanks, bro. So please hear me in this. At this point, again, it tells us that Matthew left all to follow him. He left all to follow him. Now walk with me in this text. The question is, if Jesus were to say, follow me, you would might ask, where? Where's the first place he'd want to go? Can I say the first place he wants to go is home? He wants to go home with you because he wants to transform there first. And the story in Judges 6 through 8, when we read the story of Gideon, God has a calling on a guy that's clearly skeptical, cynical, and then scared. But in that story, God says, now look, at this is what I want you to do. Your dad has an altar outside. He has an obscene giant pillar outside, and people are coming to worship on it. And he has cattle set aside for sacrifice. So I want you to take that wooden image, image, cut it down. I want you to create a different altar, one to me. And then I want you to take that altar, that that wood, make it firewood, and then take that cow and burn it to me instead. I want your house clean. There are things in your house you're worshiping that are in direct competition with me. They're in direct opposition to me. And I would love to transform the world around you, but you've got to let me transform the world in you first. Interesting, because once he does that, Well, the first thing we read, by the way, is that he was scared because he knew that people would be upset about it. And they were, by the way. It was not an, it was not a, um, a false presupposition. The people came out and they said, we want to kill him. And dad, by the way, says, well, if the guy's a real God that he's just destroyed his altar, well, then why don't you let the God get him if he's for real? I love the fact that dad called their bluff. From that point, by the way, Gideon gets a name change to Yerubaal, which means let Baal plead. So look at, maybe you are in a place where you realize God needs to make some changes inside. What you're looking at, what you hold in high regard, what you're valuing, what's really important. But you know what we read after that, right after that? Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. See, God does want to empower you. He just doesn't want to bless your mess. And I just love the fact that what, makes, what God makes clear with Gideon is that he wants to start in the house. Do you know why England's such a mess? Because the church is. And judgment should begin there. Not condemnation, cleansing. Because the church has gotten busy about a whole lot of things that don't involve Jesus and not, and they've really disenfranchised and divorced themselves from his mission to seek, serve, and save the least, the last, the lost. If we were out preaching the gospel, well, then I'd say 
we'd see this world changed. But I'm not going to call the church, I'm not going to divorce myself from it and say it's a horrible thing. It's still the bride Jesus died for and he still loves her and he's still marrying her. I'm privileged enough to be a part of it and God willing, so are you. But he wants you to, he wants to, he goes, follow me, where? Imagine if Jesus said, to the cross, to the mockery, to the whatever. Well, let's start with this. Let's start by your house because if we don't clean up the house, you won't follow me anywhere beyond that. That's as far as we're going to go. So, we follow him there and what does, what does Matthew do? And I wonder who gave him the name. Do you think Jesus gave him the name Matthew? When he went from attached, and he was attached, by the way, but to the wrong things, to now being the gift of God, walking with God himself. He's like, you're my gift. God's like, I bought myself a birthday present. What was it? You. Imagine that. You know, it's Christmas. Happy birthday to me. I got me you. And as he does, well, lo and behold, of course, there is the religious leadership. Now look at I'm so sick of giving up words to the world. We do this all the time. We're so busy telling people that we, we, we're not religious. We just love the Lord. Well, we are religious. We're just not religious the way it's defined. Religious in a simple sense means devoted. I hope you are religious. I pray to be the most religious person. I'm not. Sometimes I look at people who are into like global warming or cooling or recycling or whatever. And some of those are the craziest religious nuts I've ever met. <clears throat> there are people that are like, they wouldn't, you know, it's like you, you even mention the word flower and they freak out because they're like, they're, you know, gluten's like Satan to them or whatever. I mean, there are people, they are really devoted to their cause. And we're like, I mean, they're, they're like walking in with like a, a AK-47 and riddling the place full of holes. And we're like tap dancing in quietly soft shoe because we don't want to make any noise. And if you learn this, you know, because we went through this stage. Do you remember this? Like 10 years ago, some of you were, it's like, don't say that word because you'll alienate people. Don't say the word because they won't get what it means. Interesting, those words intrigue people. But we don't want to use words like born again or words like redeemed because after all, people are like, oh, you're one of those people. Wouldn't it be great if we said, yes, I am one of those people. But check it out. It's awesome. Because you know what happened? We gave it up. And you know what happened? The world said, well, then I'll take that. Thank you very much. I'm a born-again alcoholic. I'm a born-again porn addict. I'm a born-again... It's amazing where it goes. In other words, the moment we let go of the word, it isn't like the world says, whoo, good thing we're done with that word. Let's get into something that's more meaningful. They just took the word and claimed it for themselves. And here's the scariest of them all. Jesus Christ! The name that is above every name. There is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. And the church uses it less than the world now. Let's be honest. If you hear that name out in the streets, do you assume that's a Christian saying it? Or do you assume somebody's experienced a mild moment of inconvenience? Unbelievable. And we're giving up these words. And the reason I say that is the word religious is the same. Imagine if it was like, we, I used to have a shirt. I hope I can still find it. It says, yes, I am religious. And then it says on the back, expect me to preach. Because that's the other one. Oh, I ain't got to preach at you. Yeah, yeah, I am. Let me just make it clear. I am going to preach. You know what that means? I'm going to share information with the hope you will be actually influenced by it. Expect me to preach. Everybody preaches. The moment they tell you not to preach, they're preaching for you not to preach. Back in our story, the religious leaders of the day, on the other hand, their God was not our God. Their God was their tradition. Their God was their box. And I'm not telling you, there is a box. It's called God's Word and He stays within it. But there's another box and that's the box we give God and it's a lot smaller. And that particular box 
Well, that's the one that we, at the moment you spend all your time protecting it, you realize, well, then you got the wrong God because your God should be protecting you. So in this, they're looking and now they're really upset. What are they upset about? They're upset about the fact that Jesus is there and these people were prostitutes yesterday and they're not today. They were drug dealers yesterday and they're not today. There was a tax collector that woke up and went to work today. He's not a tax collector anymore. But get both sides of that, please. If we had a marquee, which we don't, but if we did, you know, it's often people say, come as you are. But that's it. That's not the story of Jesus. It's come as you are, leave as he is. Because that's the point. It's go and sin no more. I'll take you the way you are, but I love you way too much to leave you that way. There's the point. So please hear me in this. Matthew is so blown away that he's invited by Jesus to be a part of this thing, but to forsake it all. That what he does as a result of it all is he goes, well, then you need to come to my house and I'm just going to start. Let's just. And by the way, it seems like he doesn't go private with it. Did you notice? There's a lot of tax collectors and sinners. I imagine the moment that Matthew, that Jesus said that to him, I don't know whether he kind of just started like getting the word out or you know, obviously he didn't call anyone. But or did, did he send pigeons or was it just that there were other tax collectors that were watching? Well, if he'll if you call Matthew, he'll call me. And the moment one of those guys turns to the Lord, other people like him say they're going to do one of two things. Is this thing for real? Well, they take me as a, well, but the moment they start changing and all of a sudden people start going, I remember her when she was. And they watch and she's like, well, I'm afraid to make a mistake. I remember him when he was. I remember them when they were. And you watch and you realize. Yeah, we're in the making of it all. And so they sit down and notice on this, they go after the disciples. Have you noticed that? It's an enemy's tactic, but please don't miss it. They never go to the source. Those that are looking for a fault will never go to the source because they know they get shut down. So they ask the disciples, because if you can get the disciples doubting the teacher, well, then the disciples will go elsewhere. They'll drop out. So they ask, so why is it? Your teacher eats with those people. Now, imagine some of those guys probably would agree. They've been fed this their whole life. They're like, oh, my goodness. Would you believe that Jesus is eating with a bunch of guys with long beards? And, you know, and they're they're probably Arabic. They're probably going to blow themselves. I mean, the things people get conditioned in. Who would that be? But you need to understand, Jesus never puts himself in the middle of a crowd to blend in. Listen to that again. Jesus never puts himself in the middle of a crowd to blend in. If he's going to be there, he's going to stand out. The lifeguard wears a red shirt, not because it's fashionable and it looks like a sunburn, because he's easy to find when you're drowning. So, there's a meaning. It's a bunch of homosexuals. Look, can we just call it what it is? It's a bunch of drug addicts. It's a bunch. It's an atheist meeting, or one of my favorites, the loners. Meeting. How that works, I don't know. If you're a loner, how do you meet? Anyway, but, you know, and you, and you sit yourself in the middle of this group. And you're like, well, I'm going to make enemies. Well, you know what? You're also going to make friends if you tell them the truth. And I'm here to say Jesus wants to reinvent you and me. It doesn't matter where you started. He's come to reinvent you. And we're all there. I don't care where you came from. The issue isn't where you came from. The issue is are you letting him take you where? Are you following Jesus to where he's going? And that will be the cross. You'll have to take up your own to follow him, by the way. And if you're going to take up your own, it doesn't matter where you started. We are not X. That's not where we're identified by. Why do I want to be known by my tombstone? I am as a person in pursuit, in hot pursuit of Jesus, and that's where I want to be. So, 
Notice, by the way, Jesus doesn't give a chance for his disciples to respond. Aren't you thankful? He's like, uh-uh, hold on, guys, just wait. If they're sick, they need a doctor. Not, does that make sense? And I've come to heal. I've come to make whole. Do you even see how broken you are? And let me say, as we started this, it started with, remember, you're going to have to choose which side you're going to be on on this. The side that says, ooh, the faults, I want them off of me, or the faults, I want to find them in someone else. Where do you want to be? Because the second group walks out angrier, and the first group walks out whole. So by the time the thing is done, Jesus says, I've not come to call the righteous to repentance. Well, by the way, you would have thought at that point, the religious leaders would go, oh, well then apparently this doesn't pertain to me then, does it? Until you get to Romans 3.23 that says there's no one righteous. Not one. All have sinned, but it says, and are justified freely by his grace. You know what that means? If all are sinned, all are offered, all are offered the grace that could heal and transform and forgive and make pure all. But not everyone's going to say yes, but they are all have that opportunity. And it ends, by the way, in a strange way. Well, what do we know? We do know Matthew will follow. How do we know it? Because we're kind of reading his book. Not even kind of. We are. But we are on the other side of that, by the way, also noticing that if I'm going to follow Jesus, I realize I'm going to have to forsake all. I'm going to have to get up because what Luke told us is that he rose up to follow. You're going to have to get up. And maybe there's something on top of you right now you need off of you. But if you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to have to walk away from who you were and what you even think defines you to let Jesus be your identity. Is that frightening? The amount of fear that you will carry with that will only be in regards to the opposite of, in direct opposite of the faith that you will carry for him. And with that then, if I'm going to follow Jesus, the first place he's going to want to go is home with me. Because if he's going to go home with me, then he's going to want to make my heart his home. So he's going to want to go there first. Finally, if I'm going to be followed, I, if I'm going to follow Jesus, I recognize I'm going to be challenged. And I'm going to even going to be challenged, by the way, strangely enough, by people that I would even think were my brothers and sisters because they're going to say I'm going nuts. I'm a nutter now because I'm full on for Jesus and nobody does that anymore. Well, I'm here to say, yes, they do. And I want to be one of them. And in this, in the end of it all, by the way, as he goes to this, notice, by the way, he ends with flipping the coin on them. And the last verse he says here, go and learn what this means. Now, that's a classic Pharisaic response, by the way. But it's not just a response to someone's inquiry unless it is really juvenile and stupid. It is a very insulting thing. What that says is apparently you don't know the scripture well enough. That's what it says. So go and learn what this means. And then they always quote a verse. Well, Jesus has done that here with Hosea 6.6. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. See, these guys are really big on the bravado of doing big things in church, if you will. We recognize people like that. But that isn't where the Lord was with it. This is what I really want. Is you really want to show me what a real heart that belongs to me looks like? Show me how you deal with each other. That's what I want to see. So let's just make it as simple as possible. There's just two commands. Everything will fit under those umbrellas. Love me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then love your neighbor yourself. Remember where they hit him with next? They'll say, well, then fine. Well, then who's my neighbor? Could it be like just my wife on the days that I'm enjoying her more? And Jesus, of course, makes it that it was the person in need. That's Luke 15. Interesting, by the way, by the time Matthew gets to Matthew 12, 
the same religious leaders who are condemning him, Jesus would say, if you had learned what it meant, that I desire, by the way, mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. In other words, Jesus said, if you had done the homework I assigned for you, we wouldn't be having this conversation right now. So this is, I don't normally do this, but I just want to do this. This particular text really led me, and I did this last week, which is strange, because you know, there were songs that were written from it. And so I'm going to share that, and not because I think it's anything other than perfectly reaches you like it's reached me. This is how I process a lot of this, to be honest, as they turn into songs. And the reason is because there are a lot of Matthews out there. And so this is called Matthew's Song. But then after that, I just want to bring out, as we go to prayer after that, that this really is about a call to follow Jesus, not just a call to, I mean, we would say there's a call to accept Jesus. Well, sure, but if you're going to accept Jesus, you need to take him for who he is, and he's going to be the Lord, which means he has to be the leader of your life. And to be the leader of your life, then you have to let him lead you. And if you're going to let him lead you, you have to be willing to follow. That means you have to get up and off at the place you're at, Leave the identity that you think is safe and secure and follow him to places you'd never thought you would go. Interesting, by the way. I think it would be interesting that the disciples would have a hard time with, uh, with Matthew, although they had just gotten back from the demoniacs. Do you remember that? I mean, imagine Jesus, made, in essence, used that as a precursor for calling Matthew so that we would go, well, if he could take care of those guys, he certainly could take care of this one. All right. Consider this, and then we're going to pray. Kindness calls your heart by name and says, 
I pray right now for every person in this room, myself included, that somewhere in this, Lord, they, you know, we could just play the game. And it doesn't mean that we have to be the Matthew where we're sort of sitting in a tax booth outside somewhere openly in defiance to our culture and the things that we recognize we've established. But maybe it's just in our hearts where we see somebody praising you with abandon and we get this attitude like, What a joke. Well, clearly the problem isn't them. It's us. And the moment we start to see genuine surrender as some form of problem or some form of performance, because if we were to do that, it would clearly be. Then we recognize that we're Matthew here in this story. Ironically, though, the moment we start finding fault in others, we become the very people that Matthew hated the most, it seems, the religious leaders. Because we're quick to find fault even in the places where you are. Not just in the things where we just want to complain because it keeps us from stepping into a place of open vulnerability with you. We recognize, God, you tell us in Proverbs that a brother offended is harder to win than a walled city. But you also tell us that a person with no control over their spirit is like a city with no walls. So somewhere between a person that is completely out of control with their emotions and a person offended is a person surrendered. And that's why I pray we would be today. I pray there would be a place where we could hear afresh and anew, follow me. And not just follow me to where I could serve you, but follow me where I could heal you and make you whole and transform you and then cleanse you and fill you and then use you and Use you to transform the world around you by transforming the world in you first so that you could openly say, God transforms from experience. So here in this room right now, you know, Lord, where our hearts are. And maybe in this room right now, there'd be someone, anyone, who isn't even sure if they've even accepted the gift of Jesus Christ. And that death on the cross for their sins, the resurrection to offer them that new life. And today they've heard that they could come as they are, but... But you don't want to leave them that way. You love them too much to do that. You want them to lay down that life and all of their, their fault and their sin because you have the power to forgive sin and, you, and they are burdened. They're, it's on top of them. And you just feel like 
the, the, the gravity of this world is owning you and you just you're hopeless. And I'm here to let you know that Jesus is here to make you whole. And you don't have to overly develop the problem in the sense of making sure that Jesus gets it. He knows you better than you know you. He knows you so well, he knows how big the problem is, even if you don't. The Bible tells us not only that there is no one righteous, which means that everyone needs this physician, and that the wages of sin is death, which tells us that this thing that the doctor needs to cure us of, if he doesn't intervene, it's terminal. But in that same book, it tells us that if we're willing to confess with our mouth that Jesus really is Lord and believe in our heart that we'll be saved or that he was raised from the dead, that we will be saved. And, and I just need to let you know here as we're praying that the Lord really has paid the bill. He's, he, the doctor is here to heal, to transform, not just of something physical in your tent, but of the person inside that dwells eternal. Could you hand him that today? Could you hand him you today? Say, Jesus, I really do believe you died on the cross to pay for all of this. Your brokenness for my brokenness so I could be made whole. Your resurrection to give me a new life, not one now owned by these sins, identified by these things, but rather one new, where the old has passed away. But for that, there's a choice you need to make. God's a, he's a, he's a gentleman. He stands at the door and knocks. He doesn't kick it down. The choice is yours today. And whether that is for the first time in your life you want to say yes to this gift of Jesus, or maybe it's just you recognize how far you've been and you've played the role where now you've really, what you watch and what you read and what you study and what you seek and what you prioritize is so opposite of you know what pleases God. Imagine walking out of here delighting in his delight, being set free. I'm going to pray a prayer and I ask you to listen. And at the end, if you agree, I ask you to give a confident and resounding amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. Let that be my prayer now. So be it in my life. And here's the prayer. God, I come to you broken. I come to you faulty. Lord, you know every fault. You know every stain. You know every spot. You know every blemish. But you paid for them all. And Father in heaven, you recognize that that those crimes in my heart have to be punished. And so you sent your only begotten Son, Jesus, the Christ, who came to earth just as, as was promised and died on the cross so that all of my wrong could be punished. And just like Scripture promised, on the third day he rose again. And I'm banking on that now. I hear Jesus calling me. I, in my heart, I know he's calling me to do more than just kind of agree with him, but to follow him, to actually put shoes on in this and to get up off of the place where I'm living, to let you transform me, redefine me, reinvent me and make me a brand new thing. And because of that, Lord, I know all the bitterness, all the weirdness, all the anger, all of the things, Lord, that <clears throat> I feel is so legitimate that it is, in essence, legitimized my, my vice. I walk away from that stuff now to follow you, to be made new, because I don't want to be in chains anymore for this. I want to be new and free. So here in this room now, I say yes. Yes to this gift of Jesus, to his death, and let all that stuff die, to his resurrection, and let a new me live. As I say yes, I say have me, make me yours, and teach me how to delight in your delight. 
and to follow you as you call me to. In Jesus' name. If you agree with that, I say you have a confident Amen. Lord, you've heard our prayers today. And I pray now, Lord, as we head out of here, that you would lead us, Lord, to a deeper and more meaningful place with you. Take us seriously. Begin us on this beautiful journey now to leave our booths and follow you as we should. So I commit this precious flock to you. I commit dear Daniel to you, Lord, and the and, and Bruno and Hugo and David and Lord, in the other Daniel, I commit these guys to you, Lord, as in this flock to them. Lord, it's in your hands now. Bless this flock, I pray. Bring us back with great report that we can continue to move forward and serve and watch you do the work you want to do here. In Jesus' name, amen.